Well, let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, just find your way to the passage that was read for us a moment ago. You know, during Hitler's Holocaust, there lived a man named Helmut Tilika. And he and some of his friends, one of whom is probably more famous to you, a name that you've heard, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, they formed a group of basically resistance folks who opposed the Third Reich. And together, uh, Tilika and his friends would meet in a secret, in secret fashion, and they would develop documents that were antithetical to Hitler and to his, uh, they were designed to undermine his ambitions. And all of these guys were driven by their shared faith in the gospel, and so they wrote papers and letters and treaties of sorts to provide a theological and kind of an intellectual counter to, uh, or to provide a theological and an intellectual voice to what they referred to as the other Germany, that is, those in Germany that, were, that weren't on board with all that Hitler was trying to do in the world. Well, one day, the Gestapo caught wind of their meetings, and so they busted in, and they arrested members of the group. And some of them, like Bonhoeffer, were imprisoned and tortured and eventually killed. A few others were imprisoned, and they were in prison waiting for their execution before the U.S. and her allies came in and began to liberate Berlin and all that was going down. One of the guys that was set free in that moment was named Walter Bauer. Now, Tilika was never arrested. He continued during that time to write and to produce material that would later help rebuild Germany after the fall and, or after the war. And it always kind of puzzled him and perplexed him as to why he was spared. And sometime later, he was talking to Bauer, and Bauer told Tilika that one day, the Gestapo entered his prison cell with a list of names of those in their group. And one name on the list was illegible. They couldn't make it out. The ink had been smudged. Bauer knew that it was Tilika's name, but he refused to say so. And so it turned out that Tilika was spared during that time because, because the ink of his name was smeared. Now, there are some who would hear a story like that, and they would be quick to chalk it up to chance. They would be quick to talk, chalk it up to luck, fortune, or maybe even fate. But as you and I continue drawing near to the God of the Bible, and the more we get to know the God of the gospel, who sent his son Jesus to live and to die and to rise again for our redemption, for our salvation, the less we will speak of chance, the less we will speak of luck, the less we will speak of fortune and fate. That's not the language we use because that's not language that reflects the reality of who God is in the scriptures. As we draw near to the God of the scriptures and the God of the gospel, the more frequently and the more fluidly are we going to use the language of providence. And we're going to recognize that our God is at work in every detail of our lives and in every detail surrounding our lives to flesh out his purposes, both globally and personally, for all of, for all of his people. So we speak of providence. And that's the attribute of God that we're going to dive into today, the providence of God. And as you know, as we've been looking at different attributes of God over the course of the summer, that different artists in our faith family have meditated upon those attributes, they've read and reflected upon a scripture passage related to that attribute, and they've been creating pieces of art for us to, to look at and to meditate upon and to uh, look upon. And uh, all the pieces that have been developed over the course of a series are hanging on the wall in the back, and today's piece was submitted by 
a woman named Amanda Hickernell, who's a member of our West Seattle Expression, and she put together this piece titled The Providence of God, and I would encourage you before you leave today to come and, and get a close look at it and pay attention to the intricate detail of this piece. This is actually a picture of it. What she did was she took some wood and she did a laser carving. So uh, the, the real piece or the original piece was, is over in our West Seattle Expression. If you ever find yourself over there, be sure to check it out. It's definitely worth viewing. But what I love about it is just how intricate the detail is. And when you think about the providence of God, that's where your mind wants to go. That's where your heart should flutter towards, understanding that God is not just concerned about the big deals of your life and the big events of your life and the big splashes of your life. God is concerned with the intricate, intimate details of each and every one of his children. And he is providentially involved and he is providentially orchestrating everything in our lives to accomplish his purposes for us. It's a remarkable thing to believe and to trust and to rest in the providence of God. And I want to take us to Exodus chapter 2 because Exodus chapter 2 kind of provides us with a surprising profile of God's providence and the ways that God's providence oftentimes kind of appears in us and around us and how it kind of fleshes itself out um, in our lives and in our journey through this world. And if you're familiar with the story of Exodus, I know we're just dropping down into chapter 2, but understand that the book of Exodus begins with the people of Israel living in slavery. They are in bondage. They are uh, the slaves of the Egyptians, and the Egyptians are oppressing them. The Egyptians are uh, treating them poorly. In fact, the guy who's kind of running the show named Pharaoh, he wanted to annihilate and wipe out the Israelites because at some point he felt threatened by their very presence in the country. You see, he felt like if he just kind of uh, just kind of whipped them with the rod of oppression and suffering, then that would kind of break their morale and cause them to become a weak people in society. But if you read through Exodus chapter 1, the exact opposite happens. The more he oppressed the Israelites, the stronger they become. They became more numerous in the land. They became physically stronger than the Egyptians. And God's, God's providence was fleshing itself out for his people, even in the midst of their oppression. So much so that Pharaoh got so knocked off balance by it that he decided in private to have every male offspring of the Hebrew people killed. That was how he was going to control the population of the Israelites. And so he started out privately, kind of trying to do that secretly. But eventually the lid on that plan just kind of blew up. And, and soon, by the time you get to the end of chapter 1, he's launched a full-fledged public genocide of all the Hebrew babies born, particularly the male babies that were born in that day. In fact, he instructs many people to take the Hebrew baby boys and to uh, drop them off in the Nile River. That was how they were going to commit this genocide and control the Israelite population. You know, it's a remarkable thing that, you know, what a person tends to, tends to dare to do in private, eventually he's going to start doing in public. And that's kind of the, the, pro, the, the way Pharaoh's story kind of unfolds in Exodus chapter 1. What he's daring to do in private, he will start boldly and unashamedly doing in public. That's just kind of the way sin and depravity works. Depravity is a downhill skier. It's always picking up steam. And there's really no way to curb it. There's no way to reverse it. There's no way to stop it unless there's a God of providence. Unless there is a God whose providence of redeeming grace is willing to intervene and to curb the depravity and the sinfulness of fallen creatures like, like you and me. 
And so when that's going down in Exodus chapter 1, as Pharaoh's picking up steam and he's going public with his uh, unholy ambitions, in Exodus chapter 2, we begin to learn that God is now on the move, that God is going to show up in the world. But what he's going to do, he's not going to show up loudly and proudly. He's not going to show up with just flashes of the supernatural, at least in this moment. Instead, we begin to see God's providence surfacing in this story very quietly and very subtly. You know, if you're honest with yourself about your experience with God and trying to assess how God's providence appears in your life, chances are, more times than not, it's showing up on the quiet side and it's showing up subtly. I mean, if you read through verses 1 through 22 of chapter 2, you're not going to see God's name mentioned one time. You're not going to see a single explicit reference to God in this passage that we just read. But that's the nature of God's providence. God's providence often works behind the scenes. It's not always making huge splashes of supernatural movements and crazy manifestations. Oftentimes and ordinarily, his providence works on a subtle capacity. And his providence operates in a quiet capacity. And so his name's not mentioned in verses 1 through 22. And I think this is brilliant of the passage because it kind of creates the tension that you and I feel in the lives that we live as we journey through this world. I mean, no doubt when you find yourself in perplexing situations... Oppressed circumstances, difficult seasons, suffering and challenging, no doubt at some point you're going to wonder, where is God? Is God aware of what I'm going through? Is God attentive to what I'm experiencing? Is God going to do anything about my life and my situation? And you're going to begin asking the question, where is God? Well, that's the tension created in verses 1 through 22 when you read that whole passage of all these events going down in Moses' life and God's name isn't mentioned one time. And it's a temptation for you and I to think, well, since God's not showing up powerfully and explicitly and obviously, then he must not be at work. And if that's our conclusion when we're in those seasons, situations where we're not understanding what providence means or what the providence of God, how it operates in our lives on an ordinary basis. God's providence is usually subtle, it is usually quiet, and you begin to get a sense of this as you pay attention to some of the subtle details of the passage that was just read for us a moment ago. So, for example, consider the birth of Moses. The fact that there was this, that this woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son, that's evidence of the providence of God. Because we know, reading through the scriptures, that God is the giver of life. We know when you get to Psalm 139, there's this poetic picture of God knitting together an infant in a mother's womb. And, and we know in Genesis chapter 1, God spoke all of life into existence. In other words, no baby is knit together in a mother's womb and no baby is born apart from the providence of God. He is the giver of life. He is the sustainer of life. He is the one who makes life happen. So the fact that Moses is born in this moment reminds us of the providence of God. It reminds us of his creative power. Notice verse 2. It says, when his mother looked at him, it says that she saw that he was beautiful. And the language used there, that this baby was beautiful, that's an echo of the creation story. In Genesis chapter 1, when God created all that exists and he declared it good, and then he said, very good, that's the same language being used here in reference to this baby that was born. So there's a subtle connection between this story and God's creative power in Genesis chapter 1 because the same God who spoke the universe into existence is responsible ultimately for the birth of Moses in the world. So we're reminded of God's creative power because creating, creating life is the work of God's providence. But then notice also that this baby's basket 
The moment the baby is born and she sees that he's beautiful, she wants to do something to protect him from Pharaoh's schemes and to prevent him from being cast in the Nile in a way that would cause him to lose his life. So she decides, well, my idea is to put him in a basket. And then I'm going to take that basket and put it in the Nile. That might not have been your choice, but that was her choice. And because you think, well, I'm going to put my baby in a basket in the Nile. There are reptiles there. That might not be a very safe thing. Like, what am I doing there? Well, as you consider how the word beautiful reminds us of God being the good creator of life, you consider the word that's translated basket in that passage. And it's a word that's designed to remind you and I that God is not only our creator and that creation is a work of God's providence, but it's a word designed to remind us that God is redeemer and redemption is always the work of God's providence in the world. The word for basket is the same word used for ark back in Genesis when God flooded the earth due to sin and As the waters were filling up, he took his people who received grace in that moment and he put them in an ark. He put them in a basket of sorts. And they experienced God's redeeming grace in that moment, God's providence at work to bring about redemption and to continue his work of redemption in the world. Well, here you have Moses being placed in a basket and in an ark of sorts. And what's interesting is that same language of of pitch and uh, how how is it described? A papyrus basket coated with asphalt and pitch. That's the same language used to describe Jesus' manger in the Gospels. Reminding us that the God of providence draws near when he's redeeming his people. And he works out our redemption personally and closely and intimately. In other words, God is not remote. God is not removed from the affairs of the world. God is not obtuse. He is not aloof. He is not distracted. He's keenly aware of everything that is taking place in this world, and he's involved in all that is going down. He's involved to bring life. He's involved to sustain life. He's involved to redeem life. That's what God's providence is driving towards. But then you also see subtle dynamics when you look at God's work in Pharaoh's daughter. Here you have Pharaoh's daughter showing up on the scene, and when she sees the basket, she's come down there in a timely fashion. And she's uh, walking along the riverbank. She sees the basket among the reeds. She sends her slave girl over to open it up, and when she does, she sees the child, and it says that she took pity on him. At just the right time, this woman showed up, who's the daughter of the man trying to wipe out all the Hebrew male children. And here, she looks at one of those children that's been placed in this basket, and her heart changes. It says she looked upon this baby, and she took pity, or she had compassion on him. I think you begin to see the providence of God in how she responds to baby Moses in that moment. Because I would remind you, earlier in Genesis chapter 1, when God created human beings, he created us in his image. Male and female, he created us in the image of God. And the image of God is something that is true of every single person on the planet. It wasn't something just true for the Israelites. It was something true of the Egyptians as well. And when the fall happened and sin entered the world, sin did not erase the Imago Dei entirely from our lives. There's still echoes of the Imago Dei that are reverberating within the heart and the soul of every human being on the planet. Now, it's definitely been distorted, it's definitely been damaged, it's definitely, in many ways, been ruined, but there's still echoes, because God and his grace is preserving echoes of the Imago Dei, because the Imago Dei, when we see it or we hear it echoing, it can remind us of who God is. And so here's this moment where this 
Pharaoh's daughter sees this baby and her heart's moved with compassion. And that's the same words used to describe how God responds later when he looks upon the people of Israel in Egypt. And he sees them in their suffering and he sees them in their oppression and he sees them in their slavery. We're told that God had pity on his people. He had compassion upon them. So it's a strange surprise that this Egyptian woman who doesn't know the God of Israel, at least not this, at this point in time, her heart is stirred. She takes pity on this child, and I think that too is evidence of God's providential activity in the world, moving things along in a redemptive fashion. But then you come up to God's work through Moses' sister and mother. After she sends somebody to to come and help out with a baby, in a surprising turn of events, Moses' mom winds up being the one who nurses him. Out of all the women that could have been selected, out of all the women that could have been involved in that scene, it was Moses' mom who was able to nurture this beautiful child that she had given birth to. It's kind of humorous when you think about it. And that, too, is evidence of God's providence in the world. You see, God's providence on one hand, yes, it often works in a quiet fashion. It often works in a subtle fashion. On many occasions, God's providence is also remarkably funny. When God kind of peels back the veil and we begin to see what God has been up to all along, it can put a smile on your face. It can cause your heart to swell with joy because on many occasions it is quite humorous. It is quite ironic. It is quite joyful. I mean, here's a woman who's now taking care of the child who will one day overthrow Pharaoh's rule over the Israelites. And not only is she nursing him, this child is going to be raised in Pharaoh's household, educated in the ways of the Egyptians. His competency is going to be crafted and cultivated in Egypt. Only a God of providence could write that story. Only a God who's intimately and intricately involved in the details of what's going down could make this happen. And the story, when we step back and think about it, it just leaves us astounded. And in many cases, it will cause us to laugh and to smile. One of my favorite stories about God's providence concerns Abraham and Sarah in the book of Genesis, where you have this older couple who's never given birth to a child before. Sarah has lived the majority of her days in this world as a barren woman, and she couldn't give birth. But then God shows up one day and says, look, you're about to have a child. And she's like, I wasn't able to have a child when I was 20. Now I'm 90. How am I supposed to do that? And she was so kind of taken aback by this word from the Lord that she just kind of laughed it off. And she laughed in response, unbelief, uh, a laugh of unbelief, saying that's never going to happen. But sure enough, God came through, and in his providence, he knit together a baby in her womb, and eventually she gave birth. And when she gave birth, much to her surprise, when she looked upon Isaac, and she was moved by this child's beauty, by this child being a gift from God, and we we're told that she started laughing. She laughed so much that when she looked at Isaac, she looked at her baby, she said, I'm going to name you Isaac, because Isaac literally means he laughs. God's providence has an uncanny way of putting a smile on our face. It has an uncanny ability of bringing joy to our heart. When God just peels back the veil and we just give a, get a glimpse of what he's been up to all along and how he's making something out of nothing, how he's pulling strings together that we thought were unrelated and never uh, to touch in our lifetime, he starts pulling those things together in our souls and in our lives and in our experience and it brings joy, it brings pleasure, it brings happiness to our lives. 
Telic was friends with, a, with an army corporal who wasn't religious. He didn't believe in God. And he kind of spoke condescendingly upon those who did. And he was always astonished that somebody as smart or as intellectual as Telica would have faith in God and have faith in Jesus and believe the gospel. And, and one of the things that surprised him most about Telica and all his friends is that they seemed to always be smiling, that they were a joyful people. And he asked him about that one day. He's like, what can account for all the joy and all the, the laughter that you seem to be having in your life? And, and Tila looked at him in response and said, well, many times it's, many times it's the result of God's providence. Many times it's because we recognize we serve a God of providence and he's given us glimpses of things that he's up to. And when he peels back the veil and we see those things, it's going to make us smile. It's going to bring joy to our hearts and we're going to be able to trust him through thick and thin because our God has not abandoned us in this world. Our God is walking with us through this world and he will work all things together for our good as we journey through this world. That's the reality of divine providence. That's the hope and the joy that you and I can find knowing who this God, who this God is. Now, when you talk about divine providence and we say things like, okay, God works in and through all the details and he's intimately involved in all that is taking place in our lives, there's one temptation that I want to I encourage you to avoid. Because some of you may be thinking and hearing this and you may have heard talks about the sovereignty of God and the providence of God before and maybe you've brought, bought into this terrible idea where you're uh, tempted to mistake divine providence with a divine puppeteering. And there's this, sometimes when we think about the providence of God, we can sometimes get this terrible image of God that he's this puppeteer pulling strings on our lives, making us do certain things, and he's bypassing our faculties, he's bypassing our reason, he's bypassing our faith, he's just kind of puppeteering us through this world. And if that's your mentality, let me, let me kind of challenge that. That idea, that image is more Egyptian than it was Hebrew. For example, when you step into the story of Exodus chapter 2, when the Egyptians made the decision to take all these Hebrew baby boys and throw them in the Nile, do you understand that they were offering up, they were handing things over to their deity? That the Egyptian people deified the Nile River, and so when they put threw these boys into the Nile, they were basically wiping their hands of their culpability in that situation. They were abdicating their responsibility. Essentially, they were saying, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. We're going to give this to our God, the Nile River, and the Nile River will do whatever the Nile River wants to do with these baby boys. Essentially, they were living by fate. They were living out what it really means to be a puppet. But when it comes to the God of the Hebrews, when it comes to the God of Israel, when it comes to the God of creation, you know as well as I do, he didn't create you to be a puppet. And he's not puppeteering you. He created you to be a person. And as a person, he's redeeming you and refining you and restoring you. He's setting you free to be the people he originally created, designed, ultimately redeemed you to be. But those types of people, people who kind of get in on this, like the Hebrews in Exodus chapter 2, they recognize that because of the God of providence, we're not going to live by fate. We're actually going to live by faith. Because God's involved in all that's taking place, we're, at, we're free to exercise faith and we're free to take risks and to do things in service of this God without fear. When you read through Exodus chapter 2 and the Egyptians, I'm sorry, the, yeah, the Egyptians are casting Hebrew baby boys over to their God in the Nile River, you have two people in the story who are living by faith. 
Two people who aren't living by faith. They're living by faith. They're trusting in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Moses' mom and dad, who refuse to cooperate. They do not cooperate with Pharaoh's rule and with Pharaoh's word and with Pharaoh's edict. Instead, they cooperate with who their God is and what their God is like. And they know that their God is a God of life. They know that their God is a God of beauty. They know that their God is a God of redemption. So what do they do? They exercise faith. This is what we are told in Hebrews chapter 11. By by faith, after Moses was born, he was hidden by his parents for three months. They lived by faith, not by fate. There's a big difference between the two. Because they saw that the child was beautiful and they did not fear the king's edict. They lived by faith. Now, fate, if you want to live by fate in response to the providence of God, that's going to make you approach life passively. And if you approach life passively, all of a sudden you're going to be finding scapegoats all around you for your terrible choices or for your inactivity or for your bad decisions. You have scapegoats all around you saying, que sera, sera, I'm living by faith. Whatever will be, will be. I'm taking no culpability. I'm exercising no responsibility in my life before this God of providence or in cooperation with this God of providence. You live by faith and you're going to be a very passive person. And life is just going to happen. But if you live by faith, you don't live passively. If you live by faith, you live actively. You make choices. You exercise responsibility. You obey the things you know to be true. You live in light of who our God is. Or to put it another way, as we live by faith and we get active in this thing called life and active in our relationship with this God of providence, we're going to start sweating because faith always sweats. And I don't mean the sweat of anxiety and fear. I'm talking about the sweat of activity. I'll give you an example. When I was in college, getting ready to graduate, I didn't know what was happening next. And I was praying hard about it. I was trusting God for my future, but he wasn't giving me much clarity on what I should do after I graduated college. And when I finally got some clarity, I believed God was impressing upon me to go to Beeson Divinity School, this seminary in Birmingham, Alabama. So when I finally kind of got that, that impression and I sensed that that's the direction my life was to go after college, I, I went to the phone, I called Beeson immediately, and I said, hey, uh, my name is Andrew, I want to come to your school next semester, and the lady laughed me off the phone, and she said, uh, you, you can't, you're too late. She said, for one, Beeson only accepts a certain number of students every year, and applications were due six months ago. There's no way you can get in. And I, and I was just devastated because I felt like God had finally given me clarity and now I'm being told no by this registrar. And she collected my information in anticipation of later sending me some application for the following year, but I hung up the phone just discouraged and frustrated, wondering what am I gonna do now? And I went to the Lord, I began to pray and I began to think about scriptures. And as I was praying and engaging God in that moment, Proverbs 16:9 came to my mind. And Proverbs 16.9 says that many are, the man's, many are the plans in a man's heart, but the Lord determines his steps. And he began to press this verse into my soul, and I began to think, well, is there something to this? Should I call Beeson back? And, and I was like, Lord, should I call them back? They said no, and I just began to wrestle with that moment, but then it dawned on me that when I was giving the lady on the phone my information, I misquoted my phone number by one digit. Now, it was a phone number I'd had for four years. I know my phone number, but for some bizarre reason, I misquote my own phone number. And in that moment, I remember that I actually gave her the wrong digit. And so I said, well, I at least need to call back and correct that. So I call her up and I said, hey, we just talked. I, I gave you a wrong number. I need to correct this digit in my phone number. And sure enough, it was wrong. And I gave her the right one. And, 
And then right before we got off the phone, I just said, hey, are you sure there's, are you sure there's nothing that can happen? And in response from that time around, like not 10 minutes later, she, her response did a complete 180. She was much more gentle with me. She didn't laugh at me. And she said, well, let me call you back in 10 minutes. We got off the phone again. I wait 10 minutes. She calls me back. She says, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to send you an application, but you have 24 hours to fill it out and turn it back around. And I'm thinking, okay, I guess I got to start sweating, right? I got to get active. She sent me the application, and I had to do everything I needed to do to get that application turned around in 24 hours. That's a hard thing to do. You've applied for master's level education. You know how intense those applications can be. So I sweated for 24 hours, getting this thing filled out, turned back in. Long story short, Beeson accepted my application. I was able to go to school the very next semester. Because I was able to go to school that next semester, I met my wife, whom I'm married to today. Otherwise, I would have missed her. She would have been gone in Birmingham had I shown up an hour uh, a year after that. Together, we got connected with a church there in Birmingham called the Church of Brook Hills. And a few years after that, this was the church that called us up saying, hey, we hear you're ready to plant churches. We're ready to plant churches too. You ever let, let us get behind you. And they invited us on staff and eventually commissioned us out here to Seattle to plant the Hallows Church. All of it happening due to the providence of God, arranging and attending to the details. But it didn't happen because I was passive. I could have said, okay, well, God obviously wants me to go to Beeson. This lady's attitude changed, so I'll just take my time with the application. No, I had 24 hours. And within those 24 hours, I did everything I needed to do. I was responsible. I was active. I filled it out. I did everything needed, and God blessed it, honored it, arranged it for me to be able to get in and go in, in that time. You see, believing in a God of providence does not mean that you kick it into, you become a passive person. Because faith is never passive. Faith is active. Faith sweats. Faith engages the work of God in the world. Faith makes decisions in light of who God is and what God is about. When you read through Hebrews chapter 11, stories like about Moses' parents or Moses himself or any of the other stories cataloged in Hebrews chapter 11, the one thing they have all in common is that they're all sweating. They're all working. They're all doing things, not because they're trying to impress God or prove themselves to God, but because they know who God is. And when you know who God is, you're free to work, you're free to live, you're free to engage in activity by faith, believing that God will work all things, all things together for those who love him, and all things together for those who are called according to his purpose. When you step into Exodus chapter 2 again, though, there's some things that go down in verse 11 that kind of threatens to knock Moses off balance. Because when you jump into verse 11, 40 years pass. And in that, there's a situation where Moses does something terrible. He actually takes a moment and he kills an Egyptian who he saw oppressing one of his Hebrew brothers. And so he leaped to action, he killed this Egyptian, and it's clear when you read the details that Moses wasn't, it wasn't a, a flash. It wasn't something that just kind of happened because he lost control of himself. No, it seems to be premeditated. Because before he killed this guy, he looks around and makes sure nobody is looking. And then when he sees that nobody's paying attention, he goes, he kills the guy, defends the, Egypt, uh, defends the Hebrew, and then he tries to cover up his crime. The problem is the next day he walks out and a couple of Hebrews are fighting and he tries to intervene. He tries to be a leader. But these guys know what Moses just did the day before, and so they're not ready for his leadership because they don't think he's qualified. They don't think he has the character. He may be strong enough to kill an Egyptian, but he's not strong enough to lead God's people. 
And so they reject his leadership in that moment. And when Moses realizes that the people of Israel aren't going to follow him because his character doesn't match his competency, he gets afraid and he flees Egypt and he runs to the wilderness and he hides. And so you might think, well, Moses had a a checkered past. He made a terrible decision. He sinned against God. He sinned against humanity when he murdered that Egyptian. And you might think that a God of providence or You might think that God would have nothing to do with a guy like Moses ever again. But the reality is God is working behind the scenes, even behind the scenes of Moses' terrible choice, of Moses' terrible approach to leadership, of Moses' terrible decision to murder this Egyptian that led him out into the wilderness, out into Midian. And and you're going to find that God is actually there to meet him and God's actually there to do a work within him to prepare him for all that he would one day do. In other words, Moses did not disqualify himself because the God of providence is also the God of redeeming grace. And chances are you have a checkered past. Chances are there are things in your closet that, you're unash- that you are ashamed of, that you are hiding, that you don't want to bring out into the light because you're afraid that if you do, then God won't love you, God won't accept you, God won't use you. His work in your life will be over if, he, if you ever kind of got honest with the things going on in your life, but the exact opposite is true. The God of providence is the God of redeeming grace. And so what you find in Moses' life is God's ability to work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So when Moses suddenly finds himself in the wilderness, God meets him there and he begins to do things in Moses' life to cause his character to catch up with his competency. You see, Moses was competent. He was educated with the Egyptians. He was trained in the palace of Pharaoh. He was a military-minded person. He was, he was equipped with all the, all the skills he needed to lead Israel out of Egypt. But what he lacked was character. What he lacked was um, the image of God fully, fully flourishing in his life because he wasn't showing much faith in God. But when he shows up in the wilderness... God meets him there and he says, okay, Moses, I have a plan for you and I haven't given up on that plan. I'm gonna take your season in the wilderness and I'm gonna use it to make you into the man I want you to be. And so when he shows up in Midian, he does a few things, a few things that God uses to refine Moses' character and to change his life, recognizing that God's providence is always redemptive. He says, okay, I'm gonna redeem you even through uh, the fact that you are no longer in Egypt, you're in Midian, you're living here for 40 years and he uses Moses' living situation to bring this about. Suddenly, Moses finds himself in the wilderness. Now, that's a far fall from from an Egyptian palace. Now he's in the wilderness. He's basically hit rock bottom. But it's interesting, when you read through the scriptures, the wilderness seems to be the context where God goes to work on people's character. And God begins to challenge people and to grow people and to develop people and to refine people. I'll give you a few examples. It was in the wilderness that Jacob saw a stairway to heaven and he had that incredible experience with God in Genesis chapter 28. It was in the wilderness where Elijah heard the still, got quiet enough to hear the still small voice of God speaking to him. It was in the wilderness where John the Baptist preached repentance in the, in the gospels. It was in the wilderness where Jesus won his first triumph over the devil in resisting temptation. It was in the wilderness where Paul would search the scriptures for the Christ of the Old Testament and he would see, wait a second, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one the Old Testament anticipated and predicted and said would come. And long before all of that, it was in the wilderness where Moses would meet with God and be transformed by his God and God would use his living situation to refine his character. But not only his living situation, the relationships he established during that season 
You see, when he went to the wilderness, all of a sudden he meets the priest of Midian. And the priest of Midian is so impressed with Moses because he defended his daughters. He says, here, I want you to marry one of them. And so he becomes a part of the Midianite clan. And as a result, that put him in close proximity with a priest who was able to teach him and instruct him on the things of God was able to teach him about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, was able to go to work on his character so that he might know who God is and and recognize that competency isn't more important than character when it comes to leadership. But not only did he begin to receive instruction from Ruel, this friend of God, the priest of Midian, he, he receives a family. He gets married, he has a kid, he learns how to be in a marital relationship, he learns how to father children. Everything changes in Moses' life relationally in the wilderness. But not only did God use his relational situation, he used his work situation. When Moses fled to the wilderness and he hooked up with the Midianites, he, he became a shepherd. Now, I don't know if you don't like, you might not like your job, but for Moses being a former prince of Egypt, to have to shepherd sheep for 40 years, I'm pretty sure he did not like that job. And the reason why I think that is because he is culturally Egyptian. He grew up in the Pharaoh's household, right? And the Egyptians, his whole life, were conditioned to think that shepherding was the worst profession on the planet. Nobody wanted to be a shepherd. In fact, the Egyptians said that shepherds were despicable people. So now he's working a job that he might, did not naturally like. It wasn't one that would exercise all the gifts and competencies that he learned and developed in Egypt. Now he's shepherding sheep all day, every day, wondering, why am I wasting my time in this profession? Feeling like he's wasting his time for 40 years, but all the while God is using his experience as a shepherd to prepare him to be the leader that God wants him to be for his people. All throughout the Bible, the best leaders in the history of God's people were people who served as shepherds for long seasons and long stretches. And they learned how to care for helpless creatures. They learned how to care for uh, creatures that were skittish and fearful and anxious. They learned how to provide and lead and, and defend and protect. They learned all of that in the context of shepherding. Well, Moses would be no different. And what you find in Moses' story then is this intersection. Intersection between the competencies he developed in Egypt and the character that was developed in the wilderness and when competency and character begins to intersect that's the result of providence that's the result of God fleshing out his purposes fleshing out his redeeming grace fleshing out his activity in our lives this is why when you get to the New Testament you step into Ephesians chapter 2 and you read a whole chapter there where the language echoes the Exodus story Because essentially, when the New Testament writers began to think about redemption and salvation and the gospel, the the best illustrations they had for that was always Egypt. When you think about it, the book of, I'm sorry, was always Exodus, not Egypt. Uh, When Exodus begins, you have slavery. When Exodus ends, you have glory. That's the story of the Bible. The Bible begins with slavery, Genesis chapter 3, the fall and sin. The Bible ends in glory. That's the story of your life as a Christian. Your life began in slavery, in bondage to sin, Satan, and death. But by God's grace and his providence and his redeeming activity in your life, your life will end in glory. But as you move from salvation, I'm sorry, sorry, from slavery to glory, God's providence is at work all along the way, preparing you and transforming you into the person God wants you to be and preparing you to do things that God wants you to do. So that when you step into Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, you read this verse. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. He says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. You are God's workmanship. Everything in your life is useful to God. The good moments of your life and the bad moments, the moments where you felt like you were thriving and the moments you felt like you were barely surviving, they're all useful in the hands of a providential God of redeeming grace. As you are God's workmanship, he's doing things in you because he wants to do things through you and everything in your life is useful because God's providence is always redemptive. It's always redemptive. His providence shows up in the intersection between who you're becoming right now and what you are privileged to do right now. Between your character and your competencies, that's where God's providence thrives and that's where God's providence is to be seen and sensed in your life. So let me ask you, what is your current situation? What situation in your life right now are you tempted to write off? Maybe you're tempted to write it off because it seems so useless to you and it seems so pointless, it seems so mundane, it seems so hard and challenging and tough. What relationship is stressing you out? What friends do you have in your life that seem to be letting you down and what relationships are, are surrounding you and you're wondering, well, can these relationships really advance God's purposes in my life and maybe you've lost sight of God's providence in the relationships you're surrounded by? What's your work situation? Maybe you're working a job you don't like and you're having a hard time going about your day with a good attitude, wondering, well, there's really no purpose in this. This is so mundane. This is so fruitless. And I would encourage you, if that's your thought process, consider the God of providence. This God of providence who uses our life situations, our relational situations, our work situations, he uses all of it ultimately for our good and his glory in this world. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the good, to do the good works he's prepared beforehand for us to do. But the trick is you have to live by faith to catch that. You have to live by faith to see it. And you have to believe that God is at work in you. And you have to believe that God is at work around you. You have to believe in the God of providence so that you don't give up and bail out on whatever situation or season you were in too prematurely. And you don't allow your heart to grow hardened because you don't like where your life is in this moment. But if you have an understanding of the providence of God, that's not going to harden your heart. It's going to humble your heart. And you're, you're going to begin to see how God is redeeming everything in our lives. And everything in our lives is useful. Perhaps the most remarkable display of this is when you get to the cross of Jesus, right? The cross of Jesus was the worst moment in human history. The Son of God died on the cross. And yet God took that moment... And what did he do? He brought redemption through it, right? In fact, he prepared that good work before the foundations of the world that Jesus would go to the cross and he would give his life there and that three days later he would rise from the grave. Only a God of providence, only a God of redeeming grace would have worked out that plan. And because you and I sit on this side of the cross of Christ and his resurrection, we can claim the promise like nobody's ever been able to claim before that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You can believe that because you know about the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's kind of like when you're baking cookies. Uh, I like food. When you're baking cookies, so you got these different ingredients 
And you know that ingredients kind of on their own in isolation, they're not very good. You don't just take a spoonful of sugar and and take a bite of it. You don't really take the flour and start eating it on its own. So some of the ingredients may be kind of sweet on their, you know, bittersweet chocolate. That's kind of a good thing that you can eat by itself. But everything else you don't really want on its own, do you? So what do you do? You take all these ingredients that in separation from each other, they're not very tasty, they're not very desirable, they're not very wanted. But you take all of these ingredients and you put it into one bowl together, you mix it up, put it in the oven, and a few minutes later, what do you have? You have something that's quite tasty, you have something that's quite delightful, you have something that's quite edible, you have something that you want to eat. Why? Because all of those ingredients work together to produce something good, to produce something fruitful. And when it comes to God's providence, you've got to understand that he takes all the ingredients of our lives, the bitter ones and the sweet ones, the good ones and the bad ones, and he takes all of them and he works them together for our good in this world and ultimately for his glory. So you can rest, you can trust, you can press in to the God of providence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace as we consider who you are and what you are doing in us and all around us. Would you give us faith to see your handiwork? Give us faith to trust that you are doing things within us and that you are doing things around us. And would you give us grace to to trust you in the midst of all that is happening? Give us grace to believe in you in the midst of the, uh, as we walk through this world. And I pray, God, that your providence and that your redeeming grace would be that it would bring smiles to our faces, joy to our hearts, deep and abiding, indestructible joy that no negative circumstance, no difficult situation is ever able to squash or remove or destroy in our lives. God, give us indestructible joy in the face of your providence. In Jesus' name, amen.